Um, I invite you to open with me this morning to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, right where we were at the beginning of the service, and our kids are headed out right now, kindergarten through second grade. They can head out, and they got a class in the back for you guys. Genesis chapter 15. We'll begin reading in just a moment here in verse 1, but I would like to go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing over our time together. Heavenly Father, it has been good to worship with your people in song, in lifting one another up, Lord, in fellowship. God, we come to this moment and we open your most holy word anticipating that you will speak to us. And so, God, we, we ask that of you. Lord, your word is clear, even if at times we may make it confusing or fail to see the truth. God, it's clear. So, God, I pray in this time together that you will make clear those things that seem unclear. Lord, that you will challenge us and encourage us through your word. Or that you use your word to have what you tell us is its full effect in our lives. And Lord, we lean on the promise now that it will not return void. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to cover two chapters of Scripture this morning. I know that seems a little bit ambitious, and, and I'm hoping it's not an incredibly long sermon. That's not what I'm anticipating, Lord willing. But we, we come to these large passages like this, and we sometimes get overwhelmed because we say that there's so much here, there are so many details for us to get caught up in, and, and I was even challenged in the preparation this week of, of not getting lost in those details and making sure I saw the, the bigger picture of what God was doing here. I'm grateful for Jeremy Watson, our associate pastor, the week that I had COVID was also the week that it snowed around here, and he was preparing this same message to share with you, and we were comparing notes this morning, and I said, where did you go? And he said, I went this way, and I said, well, I went this way, and, and, and it was interesting with such a large passage of scripture, we still ended up in the same place, because the theme here between these two chapters is so incredibly clear. You see, as we read these together, it illustrates a contrast between God's mercy and grace and our brokenness and sin. Now, we've seen this before already in the life of Abram. This should not be a strange theme to us. I want you to remember back in chapters 12 and 13 of Genesis. We were there a couple of weeks ago. Abram had this spiritual high point with the Lord. God had given him some great promises, and he had said, I'm going to bless you, Abram, and I'm going to bless your family and your lineage, your ancestry is going to be as many as the, the sands of the earth. And yet, in spite of that spiritual high point, he, he audibly heard from God, but then afterwards, he wandered down into Egypt. And you remember in Egypt, he fell into temptation and sin in an attempt for self-preservation, Listen carefully to this. Whenever the Bible says something again and again, there's a reason for it. It's not just a broken record. We don't need to just gloss it over and say, well, I've, I've heard that before, God. I, I got the picture then, and it's easy for us to do that. But really, when the Bible does that, it's, it's, it's important. It should grab our attention. Think about the Gospels for a moment. 
Some of y'all read the Bible through with us this past year, and, and you got to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you thought, man, we're reading the same stories again and again and again. I think that's no accident, because God wanted us to see clearly who Jesus is, what he came to this earth to do, and what all the implications of that are. The same thing is happening here in Genesis chapters 15 and 16. Here's what's repeated, and here's what's worth listening to again. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The certainty of God's promises is not dependent upon our goodness. In other words, God's ability to come through, it's not dependent upon who we are, any amount of goodness or righteousness in us. So here's the breakdown of this text. As we're looking at the big picture between chapter 15 and 16. Chapter 15 is another one of those spiritual high points for Abram. He's going to hear from the Lord. God's going to affirm some promises to him once again. And then at the end of chapter 15, there's going to be this this lesson that is illustrated visibly before Abram where God says, yes, my promises are sure that I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. And yet in spite of that, we get to chapter 16. We're going to see some darkness. We're going to see some sin. We're going to see the consequences of that sin and how they threaten God's promises. But then we're going to conclude in chapter 16 with another one of those beautiful moments where God steps into this moment, this situation, this darkness, this sin, and he plainly illustrates who he is in his goodness, in his grace, and in his mercy. Now, a moment ago, we read in chapter 15, part of that spiritual high point. But now we're going to read in chapter 16. And so if you would stand and honor the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 16. And I'm going to read down through verse number 6. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. He slept with her. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat, we'll walk through it together. Again, two chapters that illustrate two very clear truths. So if you're taking notes this morning, in chapter 15, we begin with this. God affirms his promises despite our doubts. God affirms his promises despite our doubts. As we've noted on other occasions, God initiates the conversation in verse 1. Notice with me what it says, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. 
I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, there are a couple of promises here that are obvious. He says, I'm your shield. He continues, your reward will be very great. But what I really want you to catch here is God's encouragement to Abram in the midst of this. Right at the beginning, he says what? Do not be afraid. You see, this reveals that God knew Abram's heart. Beyond all the promises, beyond everything God had done with Abram along the way, in spite of this journey he had already been on, God still knew Abram's heart. He knew that he was still afraid. Keep in mind what he had just experienced. All the good things. Remember that he had encountered this same God before. God had already spoken to him and declared some great promises that that he would be a great nation and that his ancestors would inherit the land on which he walked. Abram followed God into the wilderness in what we would say would be a blind faith or an authentic faith. And then in chapter 14, we saw this, this occasion where he fought Four great kings with only a few hundred of his men. And with the Lord's strength, he defeated them. And yet, God still knew Abram's heart. God still knew, in spite of all these things, that he was still very much so afraid. Now, you may say, what's wrong with Abram here? You see, he's not unique in Scripture. We see this happen also, if you, if you want to write down this verse for me. First Kings chapters 18 and 19. You can put that in the margin of the Bible right there in this conversation if you want to. After Elijah, the great prophet of the Lord, defeats the prophets of Baal, he wandered into the wilderness by himself in a kind of depression, and he prayed to God. He said, Lord, I'm not worth living anymore. Would you just take me off of this earth? He had just experienced God's miraculous deliverance. He had seen God's hand at work, and yet he fell into this darkness. There's a lesson in that for all of us, I think. Before we, I know we're just at verse 1, but before we look at the rest of this, don't miss this. God knows our hearts. It doesn't matter what we've seen or experienced or what goodness of God we've experienced. He knows our hearts. He knows that darkness. He knows that despair. And he says to Abram, and I believe he says to us as well, do not be afraid. But then we see that he begins to express these doubts with some questions. Here's what we learn as we begin to look at verses 2 and 3. Doubts are often expressed in our questions. We begin to ask some honest questions of God, and that's what Abram begins to do here. We see in verses 2 and 3, and then down in verse 8, that Abram asks a couple of humble, honest questions to God. But more importantly, we're going to see a God who patiently responds, who extends grace to Abram in the midst of that wondering, in the midst of those questions. God begins to extend grace. So check out verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 2, But Abram said, Lord God, again, there's that term of respect. I said these were humble questions, and that's clear in the way he addresses God. He says, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will certainly be my heir. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things that are going on here. First of all, this is the first time in this entire journey where Abram has spoken to God. God had spoken to Abram along the way. He had delivered these great promises, and Abram had acted on those promises. But this is the first occasion where Abram responds to God. And instead of responding to God in praise, he responds to him with some honest questions. 
He communicates to the Lord. He says, listen, carefully. This makes no sense. I I hear you. I hear your promises. But have you forgotten about the fact that I'm not getting any younger? You told me I would have this great family and I'm becoming an old man and so is Sarai. Have you forgotten what you said you would do? I don't know about you, but that's kind of like us, right? You ever ever called out to the Lord and said, what's up, God? What, What are you really up to? What are you really doing in my life? Have you forgotten about your promises? We see this happen again and again in Scripture, particularly if you look into the Psalms. We see people asking some honest questions. Abram questions two specific things, and I think we do as well, so make note of these. In verses 2 and 3, we, question, we see that we question God's timing. We question his timing. For some of you, it may have something to do with a personal circumstance or a situation. But I think for all of us, we question God's timing in his return. You ever been looking at the world around you and maybe current events, and you're saying, Lord, it's getting real bad down here. You're welcome to come back anytime you want to. Uh, We're waiting on you. Uh, You said you would come, and yet you haven't came yet. What's going on? These questions were asked again and again in the first century church as well, and that's why I believe 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes this to God's people then, and I believe he tells us the same thing. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. In other words, don't miss this. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. He continues, he says, the Lord does not delay his promise. In other words, Peter encourages the church then, and he encourages us, and I believe God was encouraging Abram at this moment, I'm going to come through. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm still with you. So Abram questions God's timing, but But then check out what happens in verses 7 and 8. Look at it with me. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, God affirming his promises, just like he did before. But then in verse 8, But Abram said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? What an honest, raw question that Abram asks of the Lord. He says, hey, wait a minute. I hear what you're saying. I hear this promise, but I've still got some uncertainties and some questions. It's as if Abram was saying very respectfully, how can I know this will happen? Abram looks at how fantastic this promise of the land was, and he wonders, how in the world would this be possible? Don't forget that along the way, Abram was not building a home everywhere he stopped. If we look back in the text, what do we see him doing? He's building tents. Why? Because he's practically homeless. He's a a nomad wandering through the land. He doesn't have a great fortress or army around him to protect him. No, he's wandering through the wilderness. And God has the audacity to say, this, you humble nomad, this is going to be yours. So, of course, Abram says, how is this possible? In the same way, not in sinfulness or arrogance, but in humility, we also question God's power. Just like Abram, we question his power. You don't have to turn there, but there's an illustration of this that happens in Mark chapter 9. You see, Jesus had done a great healing ministry up to that point. And no doubt many people had heard about this. And we find in Mark chapter 9 that this desperate father brings his son who was demon-possessed. He brings him before Jesus and the disciples, and he says, 
if you can, would you please heal him? Would you please cast out this demon? And, and Jesus quickly responds. He says, what do you mean if I can? Uh, of course you've seen all this other stuff that I've done. What do you mean if I can? Don't you believe? And I love how this man responds in verse 24. He says, it almost sounds nonsensical. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Don't you remember that? That's essentially what Abram's doing here. He says, I've trusted you, Lord. I've walked with you. I'm following you. But it doesn't make sense. I don't see how this could actually happen. But I want you to see how God answers those questions. We see this happen in a couple of ways, but make note of this. God's answers to our doubts, they're obvious. They're obvious. This is not something hidden from us. This is not something he keeps in secret. No, his answers to our questions are right smack in front of us. You see, our our natural inclination is to get lost in the mysteriousness of God and and to miss what is truly right in front of us. It's kind of like when someone comes and asks me, they say, say, Pastor, I just want to understand God's will in my life and God's will in this situation, what God wants me to do. And it might sound like a smart aleck response, but I often say this to them. Hey, when's the last time you read the Bible? When's the last time you spent some time with the Lord in prayer? When's the last time you opened God's word and humbly came before him and said, Lord, I want you to show me how I should be living my life? Unfortunately, most people look at me and they say, I just want you to tell me. That's not the way it works. God's answers are right in front of us. He clearly explains to us in his revealed will what we should do. Here's what we see in verses 4 and 5. God answers our doubts through his words. He answers our doubts through his words. Notice what happens. In verses verses 4 and 5, after Abram asks the question, he says, listen, where are these children you speak of? It says, Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He he took him outside and he said, look at the sky and I want you to count the stars if you're able to count them. But he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. You see, you can't deny the similarity of the words that, that God has spoken back in chapter 13 regarding how his offspring would then be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In light of his doubts, God quotes almost word for word back to Abram exactly what he had said before. He doesn't give him anything new. He says, I've already said this would happen. It's the same thing. We're not, we don't come to God's word looking for some new revelation. We come to God's word trusting what he's already, already said to us. But secondly, God answers our doubts through his activity. It's not just his words. There's his activity. It's almost as if, as you get to verse 9 down through verse 21 of chapter 15, God has has given Abram kind of the the novel before him and said, listen, here's the story. Here's what's going to happen. And and like all of you, I kind of like having some pictures that go with the story. I want him to illustrate for me what's going on. And that's kind of what God does here for Abram as we get to verse 9 down through verse 21. He paints a picture for him of how this is going to happen. Now, I'm not going to read it to you, but if you, if you look at verse 9 and 10, I'll, I'll read at least that part. It's kind of like a scene that unfolds from a really bizarre horror film. And so listen carefully to what happens. God said to him, I want you to bring me a three-year-old cow, 
a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought all these to him, and he cut them in half, and he laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. The, the birds were spared from this event, it seems. This is a really odd unfolding of the story. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We, we miss it. But then if you look down at verse 17, watch what happens. It says, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. I would love to tell you that it, that it gets less bizarre, but it gets more bizarre, it seems. This really strange picture, and here's what's funny. I want you all to think about this. I'm preaching this on a Sunday morning, and I get the joy of explaining it to you. Not long ago on Wednesday night, our wonderful teachers with our kids walked through this same story, and they got to explain this to a bunch of five- and six-year-olds. That was a lot of fun, I'm sure. You see this ancient custom of dividing these animals and walking between them. This was the way that you would make a covenant with someone. You would divide the animals in half, and, and both parties would walk between the animals. And what was happening here is they were saying, listen, if either of us break the covenant, if, if either of us break the deal, what happened to these animals is going to happen to us. That's how important it was. It was, it was more than just a handshake kind of deal. This was kind of like them swearing on their lives. Notice if, if you were to look at Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 18 is a great reference text for this. Jeremiah says, or the, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he says, as for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they've made before me, I will treat them like the pieces of calf they cut into in order to pass between them. God says, listen, this is what this covenant means. This is the severity of it. This is the seriousness of it. But here's what's so beautiful. You see, these two objects that pass between them, we see again and again in the Old Testament in particular that fire is a symbol for God's presence. We see that God leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness in what way? By fire. We see that God shows up and speaks to Moses from what? A bush that was on fire. And here in this situation, this fire passes between these pieces. But guess what Abram was doing? He was just kind of sitting back and watching it happen. He didn't walk between them. Only God did. So essentially what God is saying here is he's saying, listen, if you break your deal, guess what? I take the penalty as well. If I, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, this is what is waiting for me. But you, Abram, you're innocent. He says, this is what is in store for me if you break the deal. Now, what does all this mean? It points to Jesus, folks. I want you to think about this. Who failed to hold up our end of the deal? We did. We sinned against God. We, we see that we have all sinned against God. And yet he takes the penalty of our sin on the cross of Calvary. He bears the burden of the sin that we deserve to bear. And it begins all the way back here in Genesis 15. God says, this is my covenant before you. This is my presence before you. You see, despite his doubts and his questions, Abram had witnessed yet again a magnificent display of God's grace, his intimacy, and his presence. However, chapter 16 reveals that both he and Sarah quickly forget that God is there. So here's what we see beginning in chapter 16. 
God affirms his promises despite our sin. You see, initially it was just doubts. And now in chapter 16, things escalate to sin. I want to be clear. Nothing Abram did in chapter 15 in asking questions to God was inherently sinful. He just asked some questions. And God was merciful and he was gracious to answer those questions clearly. But you see, we rebel against God when we act on our doubts. You see, when when it's just doubts or questions, that's one thing. But when we act on those doubts, when we take matters into our own hands, when we try to answer those questions ourselves, that's when things become sinful. Now, I read this part of the narrative at the beginning of the sermon. So I'm going to go through it very quickly now. I want you to see five traits or five characteristics of how doubt escalates into sin. How as they begin to take this situation into their own hands, it becomes sinful. Notice first of all in verses 1 and 2, we turn to our own resources. We turn to our own resources. Check out what happens. It says, Abram's wife Sarah had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. Notice the emphasis on the first person pronoun here. She says, this is my slave, and maybe I can build a family for you. You see, this word build harkens back to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, we find this very same usage of this word at the Tower of Babel. When they said, we're going to build this tower and make a name for ourselves, this was the first evidence of people straying from the presence of God. And yet here, again, Sarah says, I'll I'll build a family for you. I'm going to take this situation into my hands. I'm going to resolve the dilemma. But secondly, notice this. We don't just turn to our own resources. We ignore God's voice. We ignore God's voice. Notice what happens in Abram's situation here. Sarai is speaking, and at the end of verse 2, it very simply says, and Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, gentlemen, I would say most of the time it is good for you to agree with what your wife says. But in this situation, I don't think it was the best idea. This had all the markings of a really bad situation, and Abram should have been smart enough to look at Sarai and say, wait a minute, (laughs) we've been here before. We've tried to take matters into our own hands, and we, we really messed some things up. And, and I don't think this is a good idea. But no, Abram, he just passively agrees to what Sarah says. I think it reminds us of what happens back in Genesis chapter 3. Don't you remember that situation? Adam and Eve are there in the garden. And Eve is the one who is tempted to eat of the fruit. And in Genesis 3, what we find is Adam is seemingly silent the whole time. He never speaks a word against Eve. Instead, he just accepts what's in front of him. He takes her word for it, and it gets a bit of mess. In a similar way here, Abram is passive. He just listens. He takes his wife's word for it, and it gets him in trouble. All the while, Abram had forgotten God's own voice. God had just told him. In chapter 15, I've got promises for you. I'm going to provide for you. And yet he forgot what God had done along the way. Isn't that like us? We like to take matters into our own hands or, or work things out on our own. 
We forget about the voice of God. We forget that he is certainly with us every step of the way. I remember back in the Philippines, we were doing our first road trip as a family. And we were, it was kind of like a, an eight-hour journey. And we're bouncing in this little blue truck down roads I was unfamiliar with. And uh, the guy who was driving the truck, he, he, he kind of looked over at me. He was a great friend of mine, a, a great man of God. And he said, hey, Jared, something's wrong with the truck. And I said, well, that's, that's not good. Hey, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere here. And he said, well, I don't know what's wrong with it, but this thing's about to stop. Well, I immediately start scheming how in the world we're going to get out of this pickle. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, where, where's the nearest you know, service station? Where's the nearest auto mechanic? Well, well, it's not like in the U.S. where you pull out Google Maps and you start searching. There's no internet service. We don't know where in the world we are. We're just going. And I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, I, over here to my left, he's praying. I'm like, what in the world is he doing? That's not going to help us right now. <laughs> he's praying. He's saying, Lord, please, you know, help, help this work out. Take us to the right place. And I'm frustrated. We bounce on down the road, and finally the truck does quit. Pulls over to the shoulder of the road. The kids are crying in the back seat, and Cherie's terrified as well. And I just put my head down on the dash, just terrified of what in the world we were going to do. And my friend, he kind of elbows me on the side, and he says, hey, open your eyes. And I looked up, and we had broken down in front of a transmission repair shop. And guess what was wrong with the truck? The transmission. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else around us. And we stop in the middle of the road right here in front of this place. I mean, literally, we walked 20 feet and we were in the office of this joint. You see, God came through. I wasn't concerned about God's voice. My friend, thankfully, was. And he turned to him and he says, Lord, help us out of this mess. You see... We, are, we tend to trust in our own resources. We trust in what we can accomplish and what we can do when God is with us every step of the way. He's never left us. So, this is how sin begins. We, we kind of turn our own resources, we ignore God's voice, but then as we get to verse four, we find that we also let pride swell a little bit. That that's the root of this sinful activity. You see, Abram has already fallen into sin because he ignored God's voice. And Sarah had fallen into sin because she had trusted in her own resources. But guess what? Hagar is also guilty of sin in this situation. It says there in verse 4, it says, He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Literally what this says is, Hagar swelled with pride. So she also had fallen into sin. This was a mess. Things had spiraled out of control. But check out what happens in verse 5. They don't make it any better. At no point in time do they turn to the Lord. What happens is we deny our fault in sin. We don't see how we are in any way culpable of what has happened. Notice what happens in verse 5. It says, Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. Now, if I'm Abram, I'm stepping back and saying, Now, wait a minute. <laughs> you, you told me to do this. How am I responsible? We're both responsible. But no, she points the finger at him. She says, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. And then she says, may the Lord judge between me and you. At no point does she say, this is my fault. At no point does she say, I'm somehow involved in this mess. No, she just points the finger at Abram. And so Abram has to respond. 
Notice what he does in verse 6. Abram replied to Sarai, here your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This is what we do ultimately. After all those ways that we've fallen into sin, we distort justice. We take justice and, and we twist it in such a way and we try, to, we try to make it right when we can't make it right. This is very similar to what we see happen with Pilate at the trial of Jesus. Don't you remember that? Jesus is on trial and, and Pilate is before the people. And, and Pilate says, what do y'all want to do with Jesus? And he literally walks over to the side and he washes his hands of the situation. That's what Abram is doing here. He's saying, I don't know what to do anymore. So here, you, you straighten this out. Now, the purpose of all of this was to see how easily and how quickly Abram and Sarah had both fallen into sin. And we're left with a question as we get to the end of verse 6. How is God going to make this right? And here's what we find beginning in verse 7. God answers our rebellion with his nearness. God answers our rebellion. He answers our sin by drawing close to us. Watch what happens. I'm just going to read it to you and explain some details along the way. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness, in the spring on the way to Shur. That place, Shur, was on the way back to Egypt. Poor Hagar had left this place where she was, and she said, there's nowhere else for me to go but to go home. And she's on her way there. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? Certainly, he, he knew the answer to this question. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, when God confronts Adam and Eve in their sin, he, it says that, where have you guys been? It's as if he's searching for them in the garden, but remember, that's God endearing himself to them. That's what God is doing here along the way with Hagar. So God draws close to her. She replied, I'm running away from my mistress. The, the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress. Submit to her authority. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. This is significant. You see, God had promised men along the way, and God would continue to promise men along the way that they would have a great genealogy and a great family. This is the only occasion in Scripture where God promises a woman that she will have a great family. God is personal. He meets her right where she is. He continues, The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and you'll have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Listen. The name Ishmael means God hears. So every time that Hagar would call out Ishmael's name, guess what she'd be reminded of? God hears me. God heard me in my distress along the way. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. This is beautiful. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, In this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? This is the only time in Scripture where someone gets to name God. This is the only time. Over and over again, God names people or changes their name. You might remember God changing Saul's name to Paul in the New Testament. 
And we're going to look next week in Genesis chapter 17. God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Anytime he changes a name or gives a name, it's a term of endearment. He's saying, you're mine and I'm with you. But here, Hagar gets to name God. That is significant. And what does she say? You are the God who sees. So not only have you found me in the midst of my distress, not only have you heard my cries for distress, but you have seen my affliction. You are here with me. There is no sin. There is no darkness that puts you beyond the reach of God's outstretched arm of grace. There is nothing that you and I could do or ever have done that somehow places us too far outside of God's grasp. Hagar was in a dark, dark situation. A victim of sin and also culpable of sin. And yet God met her there. The certainty of God's promises, again, it's not dependent upon our goodness. This is important because we must understand that we don't bring any goodness before God. We have nothing good to offer him. Chapter 16 made that abundantly clear about Abram. And the rest of scripture does as well. Romans chapter 3 in verses 10 through 12. We know the scripture well. Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. In other words, there's nobody that brings anything good to the table. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. The Bible is clear. We have nothing to bring to God that is good. So what do we do? What was Abram to do? I want you to go back to chapter 15 and verse 6. This is one of those scriptures you highlight in your Bible. You you star it. You circle it. You make sure you remember this. Notice what it says. It says very simply, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Paul quotes this very verse twice in his letters, both in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. And he uses it to illustrate that faith is not a crowning achievement on our part or something we aspire to. Faith is a gift of God. All we must do is belief. You see, this belief was enough for God to say, I now credit righteousness to your account. And I think it's significant that this happens before Genesis chapter 16, before Abram falls into sin again. God says, I declare you righteous. Listen, brother and sister, you don't bring anything good to the table to God. You're never going to merit or earn his salvation. It's clear. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The same belief that Abram had, you also can have. And so I encourage you, wherever you're at, whether you're listening online or you're in this room, I want you to listen carefully. You can have a right relationship with God by simply believing in him. You don't got to have all the answers. You don't got to have it figured out. You just trust and believe. And that promise for Abram is also true for you and I. He will credit it to you 
as righteousness. He will give you a right standing before him.